Bevilacqua, is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, Bevilacqua, Bevilacqua. yeah, Bevilacqua. I know that name from The Sopranos. Is it is it spelled the same? Uh, it is. Uh, that <laughs> character, uh, I think it was Matt Bevilacqua. Hello, everybody. I am Jason Trost, the host of the Business of Betting podcast. I am joined today by Chris Bevilacqua. He is the CEO and founder of Simple Bet. Thanks very much for joining us today, Chris. Thanks for having me, Jason. So why don't we kick off? Why don't you introduce yourself in your own words and introduce SimpleBet in your own words? Sure. I'm Chris Bevilacqua. I am the co-founder and CEO of SimpleBet, and we are a technology company in the B2B enterprise software technology company in the B2B space. And we've built technology around in-play gaming and in-play wagering and fan engagement. And we sell our technology to consumer-facing businesses pretty much in two verticals, one being the obvious, you know, sports betting vertical and the other being more broadly in the media and technology distribution vertical. Great. And, and I noticed in your, when I was doing your background, I noticed that you were a wrestler at Penn state wrestling was my main sport. So, and, and I was, I saw that you were an all American you're in the hall of fame, which is very impressive. Oh yes. Thanks. So you were a wrestler too. That's awesome. I, I was a, I was a, I'm a fellow big tenor. I was a walk on to the Northwestern team. I got my ass absolutely kicked. I remember, you know, I was, a, I was pretty good in high school and I thought, you know, I'll check out this wrestling thing in the big 10. And, you know, I joined and it was like preseason practicing. And I was like, this can't be too bad. So we do a bunch of, I forget what it's called, but you put somebody in your back and we're running up and down the stadium. I'm like, yeah, that's a pretty good workout. That's not too bad. And then the, you know, we basically, uh, coach is like, okay, let's go in the indoor stadium and ended up doing wheelbarrows, which if you don't know what that is, it's somebody holds your legs and you walk up the stadium oh, with your man, arms. I remember that well, yes. <laughs> and I was thinking like, oh my God, when is this ever going to end? It's it's no joke, Big Ten wrestling. How did you how did you get into wrestling? Was, is, it, is it a family thing or what, what was your background yeah, in that? Yeah, you know, pretty much, you know, I, I'm one of six kids, grew up in Massapequa, Long Island. My father was a high school teacher and educator and, and a coach, and he coached wrestling and football uh, and baseball. And I played all sports. And then, you know, I was really a baseball guy. And I, I ended up, I just didn't have the, I just wasn't as good a baseball player as I was a wrestler. And when it came time to, figure out what I was going to do and what I was going to focus on. Wrestling was, you know, sort of more what I was ultimately built for. And, you know, got, I ended up, I hurt my shoulder and I had to have it reconstructed when I was 17 years old. And I, I was pretty much didn't know I was going to be able to compete. In those days, the surgeries weren't like they are today. So I took almost two years off. And luckily at Penn State, you know, had offered me a scholarship to go there and they, they honored it. And, you know, I ended up redshirting my freshman year and got healthy and then wrestled for four years. And, you know, but yeah, it started with my father, who was also not only was a high school coach, but he became the, the head of the USA wrestling team. So he was like a sort of a bigger wig in the world of amateur wrestling. And we moved out to Oklahoma. I was a, lived in Stillwater, Oklahoma, my junior year of high school, which is where the Hall of Fame was in the headquarters for USA wrestling, which are now in Colorado Springs. I'm curious what you think. Like to me, wrestling was one of the most formative things. That, you know, there's probably two or three things I did in my childhood that I think made me what I am, and I, I and I chalk wrestling up to being one of the most important things. It taught me so much toughness. You know, you get your face pushed in the mat, you know, day in day out, and you really it's like it's a painful, unfun sport. But the, you know, you have this kind of persistent challenge. 
which I think really maps maps really well to the business world. Do, do you agree with that? Do you think wrestling is good training for the business world? A thousand percent. And I tell a story, you know, I won't go into all the detail around the story, but wrestling changed my life. And there was a specific incident. And I talk about this all the time. I tell my kids, I got four young kids. And I always use the, I invoke the name of Mike Langlius. And Mike Langlius, you know, I only know him for seven minutes of my life. When I was wrestling him in the, in the quarterfinals of the NCAA wrestling tournament in the Meadowlands in New Jersey in my junior year in 1984, right? So that's almost 40 years ago. And, you know, I was beating him 12 or 13, I think it was 12 to two, about halfway through the match. And he, he was one of these guys that just, he kept coming at me and he wouldn't give up. He kept diving at me and he was like a pain in the ass to wrestle. And, you know, we got into a couple of scrambles, he tightened the score. And then at one point in the midway through the third quarter, third period, he dove at me and I fell back over and I, I felt my ankle pop. And so I was, I was hurt. I was tired. You know, I ultimately end up losing that match 16 to 15. Now, I would wrestle a guy, Mike Langley, a hundred times, and I would win 99 times. And there's only one, and I walked off that mat, and my coach came around. I was underneath the stands in the Meadowlands, and I was like in total shock. And if any, more than anything, I was just embarrassed because there was only one reason, one single reason I lost that match. And that's because I got out competed, which is a real. It's a, it's a fancier word to say than I quit. I just stopped. And that became, I, I looked at my coach, tears coming down my eyes, and I said, that will never fucking happen to me in the rest of my life. And I, because I, I know I can control how hard I compete in any aspect of life. Nobody could ever take that away from me or any individual. So if you just don't give up, right? You're going to win most of the time, if not close to all the time. I mean, it was just like the perfect life life lesson. And I've used that over the years. And I can tell some stories about how it's worked for me in the in the world of business. And it is, there's no question that that was like a life-changing moment for me. Yeah, I, I, it reminds me a lot of the, the Dan Gable story, where I think he was undefeated until the championship match of his senior year, loses that match. You know, stun. You know, he gets stunned and then goes on to be one of the best Olympic wrestlers that have, has ever existed. Oh yeah, you know, didn't have, yeah. Yep. So he he you you got Dan Gabled, in other words. Exactly, hundred percent. And like Gable, like you just said, he went on to wrestle in the seventy two Olympics, and didn't have a single point scored on him. Beat the Russians. They're like you know he became obviously you know folklore of of amateur wrestling and American wrestling. Yeah, it's 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 and the other important lesson I took away personally from from wrestling was that whenever you were as tired as you ever possibly could imagine, there was always more in the tank. You know, there's there's some switch that you can you can switch in your brain to tell yourself, I'm actually not tired. I have more energy and you can you, you know, you think you're at 100, but you're really at 80. And I found that such an important lesson in life that you can always work harder, that there's always more to give. And, you know, I, I feel like all these people that don't wrestle or, or be in these hyper competitive situations, they don't learn these skills. And, and I think it's such an important life skill to kind of go through this, this adversity. Yep. A hundred percent. I'm, I'm right with you. So 
let's pivot back to the business world. So, so I had a, I had a search. You've, you, you work in an investment company. You have a background in media. Do, can you give a few minutes on, on your career after Penn State? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, so I, I told you earlier, I, I had that shoulder surgery and then my senior year in the NCAAs, I ripped out my arm again and that was it. I had to go get reconstructed again. And, you know, the doctor's like, you're done. Cause I had really built my career, I thought I was going to go on to compete in the Olympics because I was on the ladder, top three in my weight class. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go at it in 88, which was Seoul, then probably more likely 92 was Barcelona. So when I, when I realized I was done, done, I was like, I wasn't ready for, to, to figure out what my career was. So I spent about, you know, maybe a year or so I had to get the, the surgery and get rehab. And I ended up working with my father at a sporting goods store and tried to sort out my life and figure out what I want to do. And I decided early on that I just wanted to stay in the sports business. So I got a business degree at Penn State, but I didn't know exactly what. And I had somebody introduce me to a guy at NBC, right? This guy, Gray Siemens, who was at the time the director of sports research. So I went in, I saw him, he introduced me a couple of people and I ended up getting some, you know, work kind of, a, you know, hourly work at NBC Sports Promo, where those are the guys that make, you know, on Sunday, the Jets are playing the Patriots, tune in at four o'clock, watch on NBC, like we'd make those 30 second commercials. And I got into, you know, working there on like an hourly, I got paid $6 an hour, and I was working like 50 hours a week. And on the weekends, you know, that and that was kind of sitting in a studio room and, and a, making the actual commercials. And then I, I ended up working at the live at live remotes. I'd go work for like ABC or ESPN for boxing and, you know, college football, what have you, being a runner. And I really started to learn about how live television, how television was produced. And after a couple of years of that, I realized, you know, I, I'm, I'm really more interested in the programming side of the business, more like the business affairs side. And I ended up getting moving into NBC in, in programming for a couple of years. And then after that, after a couple of years of programming, I knew that, you know, I wanted to be on the commercial side of the business and I ended up getting an opportunity to go work at Major League Baseball. And I got hired to sell corporate sponsorship at Major League Baseball. And I did that for a few years. And during that time, we took the rights back in house. And then I went to uh, what was the first of its kind baseball network. Like we actually created a a baseball network, NBC and ABC were our distribution partners. And we, we produced and sold all of the national network telecasts. And then after, right at the tail end of that, that was like in the early nineties, 94, there was the baseball strike. You might be too young to remember the 94. I remember it. That's when I stopped becoming, that's when I stopped being a baseball fan, actually. (laughs) A lot of people did for a short time. And then I left there to go to Nike. And Nike was looking for somebody. This was in 94, 90, you know, late 94, early 95. And, you know, a lot of people won't remember that Nike was a, you know, just a, a little old three or three billion dollar a year footwear company in those days. And they were very pro athlete, anti-establishment. And they were looking for somebody that had a lot of experience working with the professional leagues in the U.S. because they were moving into the apparel business where they were going to have to have more formal relationships with the leagues. And they they put me in New York as that guy to go deal with the MLB and NBA and NFL and NHL and MLS and so forth and create all these commercial relationships across licensing and marketing. 
And that really was sort of what supercharged my relationships across the whole entire industry because I be ultimately became the global negotiations director. So I was like the deal guy for Nike. So I would go out and do all of our big athlete deals or, or go do our NFL. And I ultimately got into, you know, the college side of the business. And because we, we were, you know, not confident that we could convince the leagues to give us all these rights because we were, they were, you know, this was like when we were fighting with David Stern doing all the Michael Jordan stuff and Stern was like, so there was all that uncertainty. And we said, all right, we can't get on the field on Sundays, meaning NFL, we better own Saturdays. So I literally spent two years flying around the country, meeting all the athletic directors and commissioners and saying, you know, we're going to dominate college sports. And so that's when we started doing all these head to toe deals with all these major universities. So we got a few years into all that. And at the tail end of that in the late nineties, I said to Phil Knight, I said, we got all these rights in college and my media background, right. Was I knew there was like a, a 500 channel universe coming with the build out of digital cable and, you know, the internet, and, you know, this was like the late nineties. I said, we should start Nike should start a 24 hour college sports TV network. At the time there was a, you know, the food network existed. Like if somebody could make a 24 hour channel around food, we ought to be able to do it around college sports. So Phil and, and Tom Clark who was the president, by the way, with Penn state grad and Howard Slusher, who was kind of my mentor, you know, I had this little plan and Phil said, you know, I remember sitting in the room, he said, you know, we don't sell TV. This might be a great idea. We sell shoes and clothes. That's what we do. So I just decided, you know what? I've just spent the last 12 or 13 years really learning about a business. I learned how to produce it. I learned how to program it. I learned how to sell it. I learned how to market it. I want to go be an entrepreneur. So I literally left probably the greatest job in the world for at the time, early third, I was 31, 32 years old. And I said, I'm going to go give this a whack. So I ended up spending the next year on my, on my own dime, flying around the country, meeting with all these commissioners and athletic directors and presidents that I'd gotten to know. And I said, here's the deal. You guys are, are in a one bidder marketplace called ESPN. And what you need to do, if you ever want to unlock the value of your intellectual property and of your media rights, you're going to have to create an alternative to ESPN. And I can do that for you. And here's how I'm going to do it. And they said, sure, Chris. I mean, we'd love to support you doing that. So, and it was at that point that I partnered up with these two other guys, Brian Beadall and Steve Greenberg, who had previously built Classic Sports Network and they sold that to ESPN. It was called ESPN Classic. Because I knew I didn't have the, the background. I, I knew the college world, but I didn't know the cable distribution world. And I certainly didn't know how to raise you know, equity and private equity and venture money. So the three of us started the company in the early 2000s. We raised about $110 million of, of private equity and venture funding, launched what was called college sports television in the early 2000s. And then we, we literally, less than five years to the day we started it, we sold it to CBS. It's now called the CBS Sports Network. And after that, I said, I don't want to be an operator anymore. I just want to be, I want to tell people how to do it and I'll advise them. So I opened up my own business it was a sports media advisory investing firm. That was in 2009 or 10. I still have that business and 
So I was on the other side advising sellers sitting opposite of ESPN and Comcast and Fox and telling my clients how to maximize the sale of their media rights. And I still have that business. And then, of course, five years ago, I, I had this crazy idea with a couple of partners to start a technology company in the sports betting world. So that's how I got it. Before we get to sports betting, I'm really curious what you think about the future of sports, because I think on one hand, you know, it's no secret that linear television's dying and, you know, Netflix and, and all the other options that people have. And live sports is the one thing that, you know, brings people together in America. It's on every, every restaurant and bar, you know, it seems like has sports on. It's really part of the culture. It's one of the big things that, you know, live entertainment is one of the big enduring businesses in the new media landscape. So on one hand, I think you have a lot of momentum to like for live sport to be bigger and bigger and bigger. On the other hand, I think the new generation, you know, I was talking to somebody at lunch the other day who's 22, 23 years old, and they don't watch movies anymore because movies are too long. It kind of, it blew my mind. But the fact that somebody can't sit down for 90 minutes, to watch a movie is it's the new reality. And I imagine that the new generation, you know, they're used to things in 30 second bursts and will not have attention to sit through a two and a half hour baseball game and watch ads and all these kinds of things. So these, you have these kind of two opposing forces of, you know, the attention span is getting shorter and shorter, which I don't think maps very well to the way American sports are done. And on the other hand, it's still quite a big business and people center themselves around live sport. Where do, where do you see the future of professional sport. Do you see it growing, shrinking, seeing the same? Oh, no. I think sports is going to grow and grow dramatically. And I think a lot of it is due to, you know, the combination of things that you just, you know, raised, which is, you know, we're, we're moving from what I would describe as kind of a, a, a wholesale business model, right? Where, where on the media, in the media world, right? Where, you know, you built a foundation around a two or three hour, you know, broadcast of a game. And, and then you would take those rights and you'd sell them to a wholesaler, right? Like a Fox or an ESPN. And then the Fox or ESPN would sell it to a retailer like Comcast or DirecTV, you know, we get distributed and then it would be sort of, you know, exclusively walled off inside of that universe. But now you have technology, right? That like you just said, that is now available, it's ubiquitous, high-speed access, you can get video pretty much anywhere, and it's shrunk the world. It's actually made it more accessible for anybody to watch anything at any time. So we're moving from what used to be like a wholesale model into what I would describe as more of a hybrid wholesale retail model. And really, the center of that is personalization. So there's definitely across the range, you know, that, that spectrum of there is a segment that would sit down and like maybe you and I would do and, and watch a two or three hour sporting event because that's sort of the way we grew up. Then you go to the total opposite end of the spectrum. And I have a pretty good focus group, right? I've got four, four kids between the ages of 11 and 16. And to your point, like, yeah, they don't sit down and watch two or three hours of anything ever. But. Could you convince them to watch, you know, 20 seconds of this or three minutes of that or five or 10 minutes of this? The, you know, that's what they do. Right. So what what's now like in real time getting re-architected, right, almost like building the plane while it's flying is 
you know, the, the untethering of the old model into a much more flexible model that, again, at the center of it is personalization. So everybody could get whatever they want, whenever they want it, in whatever form they want it, right? The friction will get removed out of getting access to the content that you like and what you, you know, how, and how you enjoy consuming it and where you enjoy consuming it. much of it, obviously now moving to mobile. So I think at the center of that transformation, right, like any other new technology going all the way back to AM radio, and then you went to black and white TV, to color TV, to cable TV, to the internet, to now mobile, sports has always been the tip of the spear, right? So I, th I think ultimately the same thing is happening again in real time. And now, you know, we're in a global world and, you know, whoever navigates that as the owners of the IP, the most efficiently, right? And the, and the big brands matter, right? So you, the, the world is sort of bifurcating into, you know, must have content, nice to have content, right? And so you could pretty much, you know, even the layman sort of can get to like, where do you draw the line between must have and nice to have? And the must have is only getting more valuable. And that's how I see it. So I, I totally agree with you that the, you know, the whenever, however aspect is going to continue, that opens up a lot of new avenues. I, but I, to me, I think, it, it, and I'm curious to get your perspective because I think sports betting intersects with this. And I promise we'll get to sports betting on the sports betting podcast. But, you know, I'm, I don't know what the, 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 the numbers off the top of my head, but I think the Big Ten Network makes a billion dollars or something a year for the Big Ten schools. I think NFL's five to ten billion dollars a year, or something like that, in that range. You know, I to me the elephant in the room is like your kids might be a good example. Like they 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 will consume, you know, judge hitting a home run, but they don't want to pay for it. They want to watch it for free. And and the the old model of the billions of dollars of ad spending is is gone, isn't it? it, it what, what's going to replace the sort of traditional linear television, very heavily ad supported model? Yeah, I mean, like I think the way that that those rights were sold, right, were based on selling those exclusive three, two and three hour broadcasts. And while that will still be a segment that wants to watch it that way, I think flexibility is getting built into the system. And so, if you, you know, like a lot of it, is just has to do with like the advert in the advertising world, right? And it's a dual a dual model, right? Subscription and advertising, and. I think that'll be the case going forward, whether it's in linear TV or even in mobile and, you know, like subscription based live programming. But there's no reason why you can't do it similarly. Like, look what Elon Musk is trying to do with Twitter. Right. He's got this huge audience. He they, they tried before he got there to, you know, take advertising and, and make money in the programmatic side. That didn't work. Now they just hired a good old friend, Linda Yaccarino, by the way, who went to Penn State with me. Linda now is the CEO. <laughs> And they have this massive audience. And I'm going to start name dropping Wildcats here pretty soon. <laughs> like, Seth Meyers. Okay, go ahead. They have this massive audience, right? And none of whom watches for two or three hours at a time. They're all watching it two or three minutes at a time. So you have to figure out, and, and I'm pretty confident they will, how to bring brand advertising back into that environment. And there's no more safe brand right then live sports right like the yankees and the in the you know the nfl and what have you and they just have to figure out the right way to monetize what what, what should be a sizable audience even if they're only watching two three minutes at a time 
Okay, sports betting. So what's the itch you were trying to scratch? Talk to me about why you founded SimpleBet. What, what were you trying to do in the market? Yeah, you know, listen, I did not get into this. My two other co-founders, Joey Levy and Scott Marshall. Scott was a, my, a former partner with me at CSTV 20 years ago. And so he brought Joey to me and, you know, I didn't know anything about sports betting. And when they came with me and Joey came out of the daily fantasy business, he explained to me and I said, all right, this is great. But like, what do you want from me? And he said, well, we'd like, to, we'd like you, we'd like your money and your access, you know, cause I, I've been around a long time. I know a lot of people in the industry and they had a whole thesis around the U S market. And this was all pretty passable, by the way. So I said, all right, let me, let me figure out like if there's something to do here. And of course I went back to all my folks at the leagues and I said, you know, Chris Christie's suing you. Like, do you really want this to happen? Like I didn't know. And so I was coming out of it with the, the media lens. I mean, obviously I know that anybody that bets on a game is going to watch that game longer. And the currency in the media world is it is attention is engagement, right? So so I knew it from that angle, but I certainly didn't know it from a better's angle because I'm not a better. Like I don't, I don't bet on sports. So I just thought that there was a business opportunity here because of the inefficiency of how sports betting worked as I learned a little bit about it. And what was clear to me was that if and when it got, if it was ever legal in the U.S., there was going to be a huge opportunity. So always in the world of better to be lucky than smart. We founded the company in April of 2018. And what happened 30 days later, boom, PASPA got repealed. And, you know, that's sort of how I got into it. And uh, I, I didn't imagine I was going to be the CEO, right? That I, I just helped put the company to get a raise the money. And then it turned out like any other startup, you know, shit hits the fan. And I thought, oh, man, I got not only do I have a lot of my own money in this, I've got all my colleagues and friends money and I better make this work. And so that's when I stepped in to be the CEO. Um, it wasn't planned that way. And, and, you know, being a wrestler, right, you got to be mentally tough. And this is a super hard business, very complicated, you know, the way data works. I mean, ultimately, at the heart of it, not only we're a tech company, we're a data company. And there's all kinds of issues around how data is collected and distributed and the leagues are involved and regulators are involved. I mean, it is a super complicated business with lots of sharp elbows and, you know, it, it takes some fortitude to do this. So talk to me about the product that you have and how you make your money. So we built this technology and, you know, our thesis from the very beginning was U.S. sports were going to be much different than international sports and European sports were, you know, gambling had been legal for a couple of decades. And the centerpiece for our thesis was in play that that in U.S. sports, the cadence of U.S. sports, like a games like baseball and football and even basketball are are much more, you know, much more available for all the in-game incidents that get that get created during the game. So, like, in other words, pitches and at bats and plays and drives and shots and possessions, all the things that were endemic to U.S. sports, we saw as a huge opportunity for in-play wagering. And if we could build the technology that enabled that, because it didn't exist, that we would have something special. So we spent the first couple of years building that technology. And, you know, the, the, the essence of it is taking lots of historical data and then building the necessary mechanics 
And that's really where the sauce is for us. And we've patented our technology, which it's the automation required to create a market, suspend a market, reprice a market and result a market all through automation. And we do it with historical data and then the real time incident feed that comes out of the stadiums and arena. So those things put together, no one had ever built before. It took us a couple of years and now we've got it out there. We just turned five years old last month and we're way ahead of anybody else with this technology. So we, we licensed that technology to consumer facing operators like DraftKings and Bet365 and Caesars are among our customers today. And, you know, we drive volume through there and we take a piece of the NGR as our business model. And what, uh, who, who would you say your competitors are and, and how are you different than them? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we, we don't like, there's no one that can do what we do at the scale that we do it. There are companies that offer technology that around say like player props, like is, is Pat Mahomes going to throw for more than 280 and a half yards in this game. But that is a market that stays up for three hours and doesn't result to the end of the game. Whereas our technology is, is Pat Mahomes going to throw for more than nine yards on this next pass? And we do that for all 60 of his passes in a game among many other markets, right? And so nobody can do that at scale. So there's companies like Swish Analytics and Angstrom and, you know, sports, sports.io that have versions of that, but, but nowhere near what we like. We had over 10 or 12 million markets that we created and, and resulted across our five sports we do nba nfl mlb college football college basketball we're about to add some a couple of new offerings as we go forward so i think the fact that we're at scale and we do it and we've got results and it's battle tested and you know we drove over a billion dollars of volume last year we'll probably double that this year right and we're about now some of our key customers we're about 35 percent now of their live in play handle or our micro markets I mean, that's a massive business. It's a multi-billion dollar TAM already. And we're still in top of the second inning here. And can you give me like an example market that you do that nobody else does? Like right now we do, I'll give you one in baseball, right? And baseball is great because it's probably, it's the sport that we have as the highest volume. So like we'll do an at, at bat markets, right? We have, you know, pretty, some pretty popular markets. What's going to happen with Aaron Judge and this at bat, single, double, triple, home run, hit out other, right? So we offer these seven or eight sided markets, which are a, a very popular market, but in, in, a, in the pitch level markets, right? And now the pitch clocks, 15, 20 second pitch clocks, right? Probably our second or third most bet on market is, is, is the next, is Garrett Cole's next pitch going to be above 96 and a half miles an hour or higher? You know, yes or no. So nobody can do that. That's, you know, like we, we offer that market every night across every game and every pitcher. And that market, for example, if, if, if you have 20 seconds between pitchers, how do you, how do you manage getting the data, setting the price, sending it to the bookmaker, taking the bet all before the pitch is thrown? That's the sauce, my friend. So we get a live incident feed from the stadium, right? That's, is that as, your guy in the stadium or no, are you no, licensing we, that? We get that from Sport Radar, which is MLB's data provider. In the case of the NFL, that's genius. And we get that feed and we get it in under, typically under a second. 
and we get a signal from in that feed that says when the pitcher's foot hits the rubber, it says pitcher ready, the market closes, right? Then the pitch is thrown, you know, probably less than a second later. And then the result is ball or strike. And we get that all in under a second. So we're only closing the market for about a second and a half. And then we reopen the market before the next pitch. So even if you're what used to be last year was a 22 second window, you're now somewhere between 17 and 20 seconds this year because of the new rules. And like we haven't seen any degradation in the volume in the pitch markets. And the reason for that is that we have technology that maximizes the uptime. So we keep the window open as long as possible so that a user can get a bet in. And in the case of DraftKings, I mean, please don't answer if it's confidential, but are you taking the are you acting as the role of the bookmaker or do you send the price to DraftKings and they are the bookmaker? Yeah, we just, just send them the probability feeds and they do their own margining strategy on top of it. So you send them a zero line, yep. so then, to speak, yep. and then they add their own margin. Got yep. it. Now, what happens, I mean, as somebody that's worked with sports data companies for years and years, they fuck up all the time. So what do you, how do you handle those cases? Like when the guy falls asleep or his girlfriend calls him yelling at him and he's so, not, he's not sending you the picture signal within one second of the. Well, that's like, we, that's all automated from the, in this case, radar, right? So there's somebody in the stadium. It's not our employee. It's a radar. Yeah. Employee. But I mean, they're fallible humans, which will send you bad data from time well, to time. You, you now have hit on a very, very important part point. And it really is, I mentioned earlier, we have a patent on our technology and the, and the key feature in the patent is it, it's, it's called a method patent with game state with game state data correction. So it's a software that recognizes that, yeah, in all of these data feeds, there, the chain of custody always has human beings. So there are going to be mistakes. So one that we see quite often is a scout in a stadium in an NFL, it's first and 10 on the Jets 20. And no, it's really first and 10 on the Patriots 20. And our software immediately recognizes that and self-corrects it. And allows for the market to stay open. Otherwise, you'd have to just shut the market down, right? So at rejections, markets are closed down. And that's what we've maximized for. Like we, our data or our software self-corrects those kind of mistakes. And I, I, which I'm sure probably is effective, but it's still mistakes will get through. I'm, I'm curious, like, does does the DraftKings shoulder that or do you, or do, I guess you guys, it would just come out in the wash if you're doing something. Yeah, like our, ours is, our model is NGR. So our product has to work and create profits right. in order for us to get paid. And I yeah. can confidently tell you after two years and almost a couple billion dollars, we've done quite well. <laughs> so it's yeah. worked. Yeah, but there's always those people that find the issue, you know, find the edge cases and can systemically pick you off yeah, well, under but, this and that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's people trying all the time, but thus far we've not, we've, we've been able to, you know, our margins, you know, we're at, you know, probably eight and a half, nine percent margins, you know, whole, whole percentages. So it, over the course of all that volume, yeah, there's probably one or two where you get beat on the edge cases, but the vast majority is doing quite well. So if, if you think about this long-term, do you think that Either DraftKings will start doing this. I, I'm using DraftKings as an EG, not as a, you know, just as a stand-in for somebody in the ecosystem. But do you think these customers of yours will ever do it themselves or, you know, the Bet Radar, Bet Geniuses of the world will do it themselves? 
Yeah, I mean, I the short answer is everybody says that. And I know going back five years to starting, and again, I didn't know much about anything. And I learned about along the way about product roadmaps and engineering resources and insourcing of tech and all that, like all the stuff that you hear in the sales cycles. And you realize that, you know, like it took us, I mean, we're five years into this, like this is super complicated, hard stuff to build. And it's way easier said than done. And they, every conversation that we had with every customer that we now have all started like that. Well, we're going to do this ourselves. All right, well, have at it. And they got 50 other things that they prioritized. And, you know, we're at the point now where that's not an issue anymore, because even if, say, FanDuel or DraftKings said, we're going to do this ourselves, I can tell you it's going to cost them well over $100 million to build, and it's going to take them three or four years to do it. And by now, like, we're already years ahead of anyone. Like, by the time they get to where we are today, we're going to be three years more ahead on the technology. Yeah. What's the makeup of your team and, and how much money did you guys raise? So we, we've got, we just had our annual offsite the last couple of days. So we, we now have 108 people. We're in town. We were doing all of our stuff and, you know, heavy investment in technology and engineering, a lot of machine learning engineers, data engineers, data scientists. That's probably, you know, a good 60% of the team. And then we have a pretty robust, you know, trading operation, you know, and, and, you know, data operation. And then of course, you know, product, just product and ops in general, and then, you know, small admin staff. And are you guys remote or do you guys go into an office? You know, we have an office. We're right in Manhattan on Park Avenue. We don't have a, you have to be in an office policy, but I go in there pretty regularly. And, you know, there's a, probably half the company is based out of the New York or, or, you know, kind of close to New York area. And we're pretty spread out after that. So we have a lot of our machine learning engineers are remote. And when you're founding the company, what, like, I'm always curious, because I've only done a B2C company and, and B2B actually never crossed my mind. But did, did B2C ever come up to you? Did you think, you know, if, if we have the magic data, why don't we just do the magic platform for and go straight yes, to the consumer? As a matter of fact, it, that's sort of where we made our mistake in the beginning. And, you know, like I said earlier, you make, make your mistakes. One of the mistakes we made was we were trying to be the jack of all trades and the master of none. We were trying to be a B2B company and a B2C company. And my co-founder, Joey Levy, you know, his original vision was to be in the B2C side. But as we started to build that, we realized the technology didn't exist. So we had to build the, the enabling technology in order to do it, right? So we were, we were, and I became convinced very early on, you know, and again, we've raised $80 million to date, which is, you know, is, is still a lot of money in and of itself. But like I knew early on, like, if you want to be in the B2C business, that's like, hundreds of millions of dollars, customer acquisition, like that's a game I'm not playing, not with my money. And so that's where we doubled down. And, you know, and Joey, to his credit was, you know, very helpful and instrumental in helping us build it out. But he always had the hankering to be in the B2C business. And so as a part of our Series C, he helped bring in our Series C lead funder, which was Antifund and Jake Paul. But as a part of that whole transaction, he exited SimpleBet and started his own direct-to-consumer company with Jake Paul called Better, right? And Jake and Joey are building Better, and we are their technology platform. So, and we actually are equity holders in Better. So it ultimately ended up 
being that, but we just separated into two different companies now. Got it. And then do you guys build vanilla sports book software or is that kind of a, or you're not entering that business? Well, we, if, if what you mean is that we build like the platform, the single, yeah. Are you, did you have a betting platform now? Yeah. So we do, like I said a second ago, we are the technology platform end to end for a better. Got it. So that platform, it, we have one customer so far that's better, but now we we're looking for more customers with that platform. So that's more the, the can be model turnkey, yeah. do the whole yep. kit and caboodle. Got it. So what's next for you guys? Man, this is, we're right at a very critical juncture now entering, you know, so everything like I learned five years ago launches off of the NFL season. So every year the cycle and, you know, everybody sort of scrambles around to get ready. And, you know, we're right in that zone now for the next hundred days, you know, all these new products, all these new, you know, pieces of innovation are going to come and we're, we're now adding some new sports, but we're also adding new new offerings to our existing sports. So like in baseball, we just launched same inning parlay, right? So same game parlays over here, Fandle, a big, big deal on the product side. But now we're taking that same concept of instant gratification and we're bringing it into micros. So Aaron Judge is up. He's going to hit the six pits of this inning for a home run, more than 400 feet. So you take like you know, the, the parlay concept and you put it into instant gratification and long odds kind of like instant gratification with lottery type odds. Like that's really super cool. Same thing for NFL, you know, same drive parlays, like that kind of stuff. So I think you're going to see a lot of new innovation and all built off of the coming NFL and college football seasons. Awesome. Well, before I let you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Well, I'm about to, I'm 59, about to have my 60th birthday. And so much of my growing up has already been done. But, you know, listen, I like, I like doing hard stuff. This has definitely been, even though, as I said earlier, I'm not a, you know, a sports betting, I don't have a sports betting background, but what really attracted me is this was very disruptive. It's, there's a lot of like entrenched incumbents and it's always fun to, you know, mess with the status quo. And I've had a lot of fun doing that. And if I could find something else when I grew up to do something that's disruptive like this, something somewhere else, that would be really cool too. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for stopping by, Chris. All right. Yep. Thanks very much, dude. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.